0: So welcome to our second edition of Simulcast and I'm glad to be back here with Jesse. How are you mate? I'm really good. Excellent. Well our topic today is debriefing and I think this is a challenge for many simulation educators. This idea about how to balance some structure, some flexibility and really how to know whether we're doing a good job. So we're very pleased to have Walter Epic here with us. How are you Walter?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Well I'm going to introduce you properly. Number one you are my friend and so that's super important but I better give you a little bit more of an introduction. So Walter is a paediatric emergency physician in Chicago. He also is an associate professor of paediatrics and med ed at Northwestern, which some of you might know is one of the more famous universities there in Chicago. He also works for the Center for Medical Simulation at Harvard, where he teaches a lot of debriefing. If that wasn't really enough to do, he's decided to jump in and do a PhD at Maastricht, which many of you might know is one of the premier institutions for med ed. A lot to say, Walter, but I get the the idea your passion is debriefing.
1: It is. I've been pretty passionate about debriefing for the past probably 12 years.
0: And we're going to hopefully set you some difficult questions. To kick it off, we're going to start with a case study. And for those of you reading the blog post, the full case will be there, but I'll give you a little bit of a sense of the situation we'd like you to help us solve, Walter. We've got our protagonist, Ellen, and she is a emergency physician and she's going to be debriefing some folks that she works with every day. They've just done a SIM. The focus of this SIM was an RSI where they had a head injury and the team had to intubate the patient using a checklist. Ellen is a little frustrated. She thinks they've made some mistakes that they seem to make every day at work. There's some people who've done SIMs before and they just don't seem to have learnt anything. And then to add to that, Ellen's got this little bit of a second-guessing herself now about debriefing. She's been to some courses. She's sort of got the idea she's supposed to follow this structure, but then she's not sure if she should be asking these sorts of questions. To top it all off, one of the people in the group is one of her fellow bosses in ED, someone who just really isn't into sim, and she's just thinking, I just better avoid talking to him. Jesse, I guess you've been in this sort of a place before with this sort of a case study, similar situations to the ones you face
1: debriefing the people that you're going to then have to
0: go back and work with and then also debriefing up the hierarchical gradient is one
1: that's not foreign to me at all. Those challenges are all really familiar.
0: Walter, I'm just going to start with what would be a good debrief and how would we know?
1: I think number one, if I'm watching a debriefing as an observer, if people are talking, that is a really good sign. People are engaged and they're talking about the key issues that are relevant to the case. One of the the common pitfalls, is that debriefers think they need to have such a strong hand on the debriefing that they are doing much of the talking. And actually, if they're doing a lot of the talking, then there's not a lot of talking going on with the participants. They're probably not reflecting as much either. Another big thing for me is that the discussion moves from the concrete events during the simulation to generalize to issues that are relevant for clinical practice. Very often, people stay mired in the actions or inactions of the team or on individual providers during the case rather than moving to what this actually means for patients. The other thing is that there can be an over Emphasis on what the debriefer is doing that makes the debriefing effective when actually the debriefing is not at all about the debriefer. It's about the learning that's happening. It's about the value the debriefing is adding for the participants. Engagement, discussion around key issues that moves away from the simulation to clinical practice, focus not only on the debriefer and what they're doing and what they're asking, but how people are engaging reflecting and discussing.
0: I'm going to pick up on that last point first. You're almost saying, I think, that some of the responsibility for the success of the debrief lies with the
1: learners or the participants. 100%. In many simulation educator courses, one would get the impression that it's all on the debriefer. And I think actually we need to put the onus on the participants as well. This notion of having the participants own part of the process is one that I think Needs a little bit more attention. It's not only on the debriefer, it's on everyone who's in the room for the debriefing.
0: But surely they have to get used to that. I find when I walk into those debriefs, the learners are often sitting there saying, Okay, give it to me. Is it something that we need to build up over time? Or have you got some tips about how we, I guess, shift that responsibility a little bit more towards the others in the room?
1: Much like anything, learning to debrief someone as a a simulation educator is something that takes practice, much like learning to reflect and participate in debriefings is another key skill. I'm very fascinated in this notion of using talk as a medium of learning. And I think debriefing is a really classic example of this, where the focus of the conversation is learning. I think not only are people learning about their clinical practice and their decision-making, but they're also learning the language of Performance improvement. If people spend time taking part in structured debriefings that are guided by a skilled facilitator, over time they will learn to debrief themselves to more or less degrees, of course, depending on on the participants. So I think it's a learned skill as well. So you're sort of
0: asking us to go meta a little bit in that we should be not just getting something out of this scenario, but really thinking about the habits of reflection that we're trying to engender in the learners. Precisely. This is probably a pretty good lead-in then if we think about our protagonist again, poor old Ellen, who is trying to do all these things. She's no doubt listened to you and trying to shift the responsibility onto the learners. She's been to a course then she's read some stuff about the diamond debrief, and then she's thinking, what about an advocacy inquiry question? To be honest, she's got herself in a bit of a pickle because she's sure there's all these rules about how you debrief. What would you say to Ellen about that?
1: I would tell Ellen that despite all the the possible options there are for debriefing, really they're more similar than they are different. At its core, one of the fundamental things that, that needs to happen even before the simulation is to create a supportive learning environment. So hopefully hopefully Ellen spent some time addressing that. After the, the simulation is over, she needs to set the stage for the debriefing, create a shared purpose for the conversation. Why is this happening and what is our goal here? And I think that would lead into this notion of framing the conversation, to use the Center for Medical Simulation term that some people would know, which is previewing. What are the main issues that we're going to be talking about? And then allowing people to share some of their feelings, clarifying the facts, and then, spending the lion's share of the debriefing analyzing what happened, what does it mean, and why does it matter for our clinical practice going forward? And then at the end, summarizing some key lessons. In many of the existing debriefing models that are out there, the Diamond model, Debriefing with Good Judgment, Team Gains by Michaela Kolby from Zurich, the Pearls model that Adam and I put forth, really share a lot of those basic components and then there are nuanced differences, but there's, there are more similarities than there are differences in my mind.
0: And if I could reflect a little on those myself, it seems like the similarities with all of them are that there is some structure, because I think what you just ran through then was definitely a structure, but a lot of flexibility maybe within that to have more conversations that are necessary for the context.
1: In many ways, as I mentioned before, the debriefing is not about the debriefer going through his or her set agenda. I would advise Ellen to be flexible and responsive to what issues come up within the group. The notion is to provide a degree of structure while allowing some flexibility, and that sounds perhaps a little bit like an oxymoron. With time and practice, it works. One of the key parts here is being very clear what you'd like to talk about. So if I think about this particular case in general, Ellen was particularly irked by some gaps in the performance by the team in terms of dealing with putting nasal prongs on, not being clear about who is actually going to do the debriefing, maybe not using the checklist effectively, at the outset of the debriefing to outline why this is important. So we've had a number of patients recently who have had issues with desaturation so it seems like a worthwhile thing for us to discuss. And in this debriefing, I'd like to focus on three main issues. Number one, making sure that the patient is adequately pre-oxygenated. Number two, making sure roles are very clear, especially in high-stakes situations such as in a trauma patient where maintaining adequate oxygenation is paramount to saving brain tissue. And number three, the role of the checklist in making sure that we attend to all the things that we need to attend to. So those are the three big things I'd like to chat about. Are there other things that you guys would like to add to that list?
0: This is a bit of a center for medical simulation terminology, but a bit of above the table negotiation about what the topics are going to be and some transparency so that the learners know where we're going. Would that be a way of phrasing that?
1: Being explicit and transparent about what you'd like to do is one of the most fundamental success factors for debriefing, because when people know where you're coming from, they're sort of at ease and they can sort of deal with it. And then you can challenge them about the issues that matter.
0: So to pick up on one thing, because you suggested that Ellen had some advantages by knowing the situation in this department and the fact that a lot of things she saw in the sim were things that she knew were happening in the real cases. Tell me a little bit more. What do you think about this relationship between debriefer and learners or participants if they are people who also work together? I'm reminded of a statement you made just before we started this recording, and that is that debriefing is a social event. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: It's interesting that Ellen doesn't have the sort of traditional teacher-learner relationship to her peers. It's not like the medical students are coming to the lab for a simulation and you as an attending or consultant are now entrusted with teaching them. This is Ellen working with her peers. And the one thing I would mention is not only does Ellen know her peers, but her peers know her. If there's one way for Ellen to make herself unpopular, it's to sort of expect perfection from her colleagues when they also know that she's not perfect. For us to walk into the debriefing knowing that we're not perfect, and actually, in this particular instance, since the focus is on intubating without significant desaturations, that we've all experienced that. Showing fallibility toward your peers and colleagues and saying something along the lines like, so let's spend some time talking about pre-oxygenation and how we can avoid the desaturations, because that's something that I I know happens to me periodically, and it's always a nerve-wracking thing, and that goes a long way, I think, for creating a space that's supportive and recognizes people's expertise without being overly critical. It's partly something you say, but it's also something that you believe, and I I know that you and the listeners will be well aware of the notion of the basic assumption or the essential premise, that we come to the debriefing thinking people are capable, intelligent, Do their best and they want to get better. This basic assumption that Jenny Rudolph and her colleagues at the Center for Medical Simulation have put forth. And I think that really is something to keep in mind. It requires effort, at least it does for me, to remember that these are smart people. They're trying to do their best. And yet, in the simulation or in clinical practice, something doesn't go quite right. And the question is, why is that? And the thing I'm adding here is to recognize that. And I'm not perfect either. I have these same issues and I struggle with things at times too. For me, I find that when you look at a group and you say, you know, the issue here is the patient desaturated during the intubation, which is really what we want to avoid when there's a head injury. And I've been there too. And you're just watching the saturations drop and you're thinking, I need to get the oxygen levels back up again. This is exactly what I need to be avoiding. We've all been in that situation. If you can identify with that shared experience, then we're connecting rather than dividing. And I think that's one of the the key things that works, I think, for me quite well in, in those sort of situations.
0: And I like your emphasis there on what I've come to recognize as positive regard for those people in front of you. One thing To sort of really pin you down now, Walter, because we've sort of heard about Ellen's trials and tribulations. So now if you were walking into this debrief with these issues in mind and with the dynamics, with the learners in front of you in mind, just step us through. What would you do?
1: Well, I would very concretely set the stage for the debriefing, clarify the purpose. If I have not already done so, I would just briefly touch on some of my ground rules, like confidentiality. I would give a time frame for the debriefing so that people knew, how long it was going to last, roughly. This sounds like this is an inside-to simulation. It's something happening on the ward. People, if they're on shift, are keen to know how long this is going to last. So after setting the stage, I would then go to the reactions part of the debriefing and sort of get a sense of people's feelings by asking, are there any initial reactions, sort of in a word or two about the case? And I'm always thinking this is important to give people a chance to vent And also, it tells me what aspects are important to the participants. I try to avoid one person going into an in-depth analysis of uh, the case because that's not the time for it. And I might redirect them by saying, can I just actually pause you for a moment and hold on to that thought because I would love to hear some initial reactions from other people. And then I would just ask, are there other reactions before we move on? After that, I would move into the facts phase or the descriptive phase. And I generally do that by asking someone in the group to summarize what happened to make sure we're on the same page about what the main issues were here.
0: So, Walter, I'm just going to pause you there because you've been through some pretty key elements here, the ground rules, the reactions phase, and then the facts phase. Now I want to take you back to that reactions phase because it sounds like you're using that quite diagnostically. It's not just a vent from your learners. Can you tell me what you often get out of that? diagnosis, as it were. And secondly, do you care if everyone doesn't talk, if people are quiet, does it matter?
1: You were asking about the diagnosis and you're asking about if people participate or not. Let's start first with the the diagnosing issue. I, I think there are two things. The first thing is, what are the issues that they mention and what are the words they use to describe them? Because if someone says that was frustrating for me, then I will make a note that Bob used the word frustrating. I like to remember words like that because then I can go back to him later and I can say, you know, at the beginning of the debrief, Bob, you used the word frustrating to describe that. Can you unpack that more? I'm keen to hear more about that. So I'm very much listening for the words they're using to describe the issue that they're reacting to, so that I can use those words later on. Whenever I see other people doing that, it tells me that they're listening carefully, and it telegraphs, I'm really interested in what you have to say about this. The topics that sort of percolate up in the reactions phase of the debriefing also help me set priorities with how I'm going to approach different topics during the debriefing and how I might sequence them. If people bring up a number of issues that align with what I want to talk about, then that seems like a common agenda. And Adam Chang and I and our colleagues, we wrote about this in our paper on learner center debriefing to identify the common agenda and then address those issues up front in the analysis part of the debriefing and then maybe save other issues for for later. So it's identifying a common agenda through the, the opening parts of the debriefing. And your second question was related to, do I need to hear from everyone? And I think there's varying ways of thinking about this. Number one, you could argue, I'd like to make sure everyone has a chance to vent. Anyone else have something to share? And then you can wait, right? Using silence is is one of the best facilitation strategies. Alternatively, Michaela Kolbe, for example, who's a psychologist from Zurich, Switzerland, who really has informed my own thinking about debriefing, at the beginning of the reactions phase, explicitly states, I'm just going to go around the room. I'd like to hear it from everyone. The rationale that she shares, which makes complete sense to me, too, is it's a low-risk way of engaging someone. And if, if they've said something in the debriefing at the beginning, then they're more likely to chime in later. The principle is, if someone is being particularly silent later on in the debriefing, they've not spoken, and then coming at them with a challenging question— And that's now their first point of entry into the discussion that puts them in an awkward position. So Michaela would argue having everyone say something up front may be a way of mitigating that. That's not a strategy I generally use because I often find I can get people talking, but I always keep it in the back of my mind. And this would be one of the things I would pull out in a day when I'm doing successive debriefings with a team. If I'm noticing that some people aren't speaking, I would probably switch to that strategy.
0: And of course, the piece we haven't really added into that is you're looking at these people as well as listening to them. And no doubt that some of those cues about how people are feeling probably helps you decide whether to pick on people at that point, i.e. Get something out of everyone,
1: or whether to just leave it alone a little bit. You bring up a, an, an excellent point, Vic. In much simulation educator training, and from you know, reading the literature, we often have a an over reliance on the verbal aspects of the debriefing. What are the words we're using? When actually, because it's a social interaction and nonverbal communication plays such an important role, being attuned to those things, both your own nonverbals and the nonverbals of other people, is incredibly important. We are all aware of people who are sort of leaning towards you or you say something and they're nodding. And you can very easily say then, oh, Vic, I see you're nodding right now. What's on your mind? Because you can tell that they're ready to say something. So being attuned to those things is incredibly important. And some people have a more pronounced ability to notice those things. And I would just encourage people to cultivate their skills in that way to notice and pick up on nonverbal communication of people in the debriefing.
0: I'm just going to then recap on where we're up to, because we've talked a little bit about structure and a little bit about process. So in your model debrief for us here, Walter, you've suggested the ground rules, including confidentiality, basic assumption, the reactions phase, getting people just to say how they feel and their initial reactions, and then getting to, well, let's just clarify, we've all got the facts of the case here. And we've talked a little bit about techniques that we have to recognize where our learners are at. So then I guess we're going to go into the body of the debrief and this kind of analysis phase. And you've spoken, I think, a little bit about how you'd approach that in terms of your three issues you might want to bring up. Have you got any sort of main tips for that probably largest section of the debrief in terms of time? And in particular, commenting on this balance, which you talked about before, learner issues versus your objectives that you want them to take home. How do you balance those things?
1: That's part of the art of debriefing. It's One of the biggest challenges and I think one of the greatest opportunities is sort of managing that piece and finding an an entry into the analysis part of the debriefing. And I would say if I could just take a step back for a moment, I'm always very explicit about saying, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to explore aspects of the case that we're working well and those aspects that we need to tweak. I may say that actually when I'm setting the stage as well, but I remind people that those are the two things we're going to focus on. And within the analysis phase of the debriefing, I'm actually increasingly a fan of blending the types of approaches that I use rather than ascribing to one single method. And for those people who are interested, could have a look at the paper Adam Cheng and I wrote on our blended approach debriefing, which we call pearls, especially for Ellen here in this particular vignette where she's working with her colleagues, is to at the outset say, I'd like to hear from you guys what you guys think worked well and what you think you would need to change and either she could put that out there like that or just say let's start with the things that were working well and and why for you and sort of focus on getting the learners if you will the debriefing participants to self-assess their own performance so that would be the first major strategy which is time expedient and also gives the debrief for a sense of where the learners are coming from. And I think this is constantly a balance of hearing where the learners are coming from and then meeting them where they are. What is their general sense of things? You know, I would say one of the biggest pitfalls that I see people doing is they're watching a case, they see a major, for them, a major performance gap, and then whilst the team is generally happy with how they did. You know, they may have five themselves. They're very happy. And then in the analysis phase of the debriefing, they hone in with laser precision on that aspect of performance that wasn't optimal. If you're familiar with Harry Potter and sort of the the dementors that sort of suck the life out of everything, that's sort of how I would characterize the debriefing. For me rather, I would say something along the lines of, you know, at the end of the case you guys were high-fiving yourselves, you seemed really positive about it. I'd love to explore that with you a little bit and hear what were the things that you really liked. What was what what gave you that positive vibe? Meet them where they are. So this learner self-assessment piece I think is is an important part. The second sort of major strategy would be facilitating focused discussion around specific topics, either building on something people said in the sort of learner assessment bit, or for yourself, seeing this is a high yield issue. So let's spend some time talking about pre-oxygenation here, because that's one of the things that's so incredibly important and easy to read about in the books. And yet in the chaos of a major trauma resuscitation, it's something that can easily be lost. So naming the topic and then using any number of strategies to get the discussion going around that topic. One focus facilitation strategy would be using advocacy inquiry, stating an observation. This is what I saw. This is what I think about it. What do you think about it? Then there are others as well that I won't mm-hmm. go into a lot of detail here, but guided team self-correction, systemic constructivist methods that Mihaly e. Colby has put into the world using circular questions and these sort of things, which I would characterize as more advanced techniques. Probably the number one thing for facilitating a focused discussion is just naming the topic you want to discuss.
0: And I get the sense previewing it beautifully doesn't he just do that beautifully jesse the way he just introduces a topic and then it seems so logical that that's how we're going to talk about it
1: absolutely where practice clearly comes into play
0: Yes, I think, Walter, you might underestimate the challenge that most of us mere mortals have in providing those previews. And for the people listening, Walter has come out with a lot of uh, literature and references and I'm keeping up. So in the show notes, we'll have some links to those articles if you want to read up further about a really rich set of uh, references that Walter's giving us. So, Walter, we've sort of been through most of the debrief now and I guess the key thing is uh, how to end. I'm, I'm guessing it's not just look at your watch and say, I guess we have to finish now
1: no it isn't no it isn't i would before i move to the ending what i would add is that the other third sort of strategy that i would would highlight is providing learners with information either in the form of directive feedback or teaching and i think this notion of providing feedback is one that's throughout the debriefing literature and one i think that is a a tool to be used wisely depending on who your learners are and especially ellen in this case in the vignette that we're discussing, if she just comes in and very early in the debriefing provides very specific feedback without understanding why people did what they did, especially with an experienced group, it could be incredibly off putting. And then there may be some issues that need to be clarified by a domain expert who could be one of the debriefing participants, too. And then the closing of the of the debriefing will hopefully have been already preceded by a generalizing of the the main issues to clinical practice again one of what i highlighted earlier that for me a good debriefing is one in which we're not focused on the concrete events of the simulation but we're focusing on the issues that are relevant for clinical practice and that brings us to the summary phase of the debriefing where i would invite participants to share what they're taking away from this for their future clinical practice. Probably in my mind, we don't devote as much time to this phase as we need to. And I think this is an issue of time management and leaving time for this. And when I'm having a good day and my time management is excellent, not only is it about what are you taking away that's going to help your practice, but to think about, so what's going to get in the way of you changing your practice? What are the obstacles that you face? How will you overcome them? We often shortchange the summary phase of the debriefing, and I'm guilty of this at times too because of time constraints, but that would be one way of tying off the debriefing and having it be very forward-looking in terms of what people are taking away for the future.
0: So, Walter, thank you. I think that gives us a nice sense of how we would step ourselves through this debrief that Ellen's doing. I think for me, just to sort of recap on some of your thoughts here, as you said right at the beginning, debriefing is a social event and it involves conversational dynamics that we have every day, but which we need to really apply to improving ourselves and our teams. And I think your point is well taken, all of this has to somehow serve the high purpose of improving the patient care. So really appreciate your time with us today. And I will put up those references because you've given us many to think about. And I have a feeling we're going to have you back talking to us sometime soon.